0: Only via the app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See (laughs) McDonald's.com.
1: Aguero!
0: Unbelievable! Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6,
1: it's 2 for Dzeko. Tottenham Hotspur 3,
0: Manchester City 4. They have made the impossible possible. Hello everybody and welcome back to the city report podcast. I am of course Amos Murphy and I am joined as always by the boy from the states Adam Booker. How are we doing Adam? How was your weekend
2: it was good I well it was it was all right. I had a nice uh family vacation away at a lake house oh, uh, nice. on the first day I had to rush my dog to the emergency room for oh. pancreatitis Oh no. And rush him back on the same same night after the emergency room back to the lake house he he was he's totally fine in the end, but uh and then obviously there was the Sunday happened, and we had yeah. to experience that and the build up and the aftermath and everything so but we're alive,
0: so. yeah, yeah. I think that's probably the best sort of way we can describe it, that that fever dream. And I'm not actually sure it took place. It's like, you know, you see those conspiracy theories on Reddit or something like this. And it's like Chile doesn't exist or Argentina is just made up or Australia isn't real. I feel like that City-Liverpool game probably falls into that. Like it just was implanted in our brains and we woke up on Monday morning being told City drew 2-2 with Liverpool and I guess we'll jump straight into it then because if we are led to believe it did take place and this game of football was real, it was a pulsating match, probably one of the best I've ever been to as a supporter in just terms of pure quality and I'm sure many people would agree it's one of the best I've ever seen. Um, We'll do all that chatter and the hyperbole a bit later on but in terms of the fixture itself then, City outperformed Liverpool on XG, and Pep Guardiola hinted post-match that there was perhaps a little bit of remorse after it, a bit of regret, feeling like City could have beaten Liverpool, they definitely had the chances, and he actually said that City left Liverpool feeling alive. Now, before we dig deeper into the nuances of it, Adam, what were your main takeaways from the match?
2: The overall sentiment from obviously Pep Guardiola there and, and from most City fans you see online seems to be it was two points dropped by City, not one point earned. Um, typically, I would agree with that in that it, it, with that kind of performance. Um, but I think when you're playing an opponent with such unbelievable individual talent and tactical discipline, these things can happen. Um I think City played that first half against literally any other team in the league, and they probably blow them out of the water. But Liverpool are, are a great team and, and could hang in there. Um, however, City were the better team in, in every part of the game, except for the most important part. Uh, their press was better than Liverpool's. I would say the midfield three of Rodri, KDB, and Bernardo won the midfield battle, and it wasn't even really close. Um, but City let themselves down in front of goal and and ultimately it cost them a a crucial win in the title race. I think um, I heard Sam Lee saying something along the lines of City need to create five chances to score one goal um, whereas Liverpool will take you know the one chance and they'll score or in this case two big chances that they had and they'll score. Um, So yeah I think you could say that City probably should have gotten more out of the game but at the end of the day it's the best opponents that you're going to play all year and and these things can happen.
0: I think the boxing analogy has been done to death, but I'm going to jump in and and use it one more time. And I think if if you sort of split the games up into rounds, which it definitely felt like, there was no sort of extended period of time that went uh, uh, more than twenty minutes in the match where one team had it, you know, there the was spells each team had and each team were on top and could have scored a number of goals, but they were almost sort of fell into 15 minute periods. And if you were to split them up in rounds and sort of, I don't know, rearrange them somewhat and shape shift them and and say like Liverpool one of Liverpool's best spells came towards the last 15 minutes, I think a lot of city supporters sort of go away from that game feeling a lot more relieved than they did. Obviously there's there's the Mares chance at the end, which I'm sure we'll speak about, but if you watch the game back in the certain periods, I am thinking, for example, some of the chances Liverpool had, and especially in the second half, there was that Jotter poked effort sort of where he may have gone with the opposite foot and it could have been a much more difficult chance for Edison. Um there was the the ghost handball from the Salah shot, which which was a deflected shot and you know it looked goal-bound itself. And there were moments where City really were put up against it against Liverpool. However there, there was that touch of wastefulness, wasn't there, from City's part. And it's a drum many of us have been banging all season. I, I don't think we particularly need to go down the route of, do City need a striker? do they not, blah, blah, blah. There's plenty of other places that you can go and get that fixed, but we've uh, we've said our penny on that one. Um, Moishe Kwanga from from the Stadio podcast and various other outlets often speaks about City crashing the box, and you don't necessarily need a striker to do that. You can have your midfielders doing that, and I thought that was something that was really missing against Liverpool, and not for the first time this season. Actually, I mentioned. Elsewhere after the Anfield game, that City lacked Gundogan's sort of presence that we'd seen last season and that late arrival in the box. And obviously he was injured at that time. But do you think perhaps maybe he could have had an influence uh, on the Liverpool game? Because there were a number of times where De Bruyne and Foden especially were crossing the ball across the six-yard box and neither Jesus or Sterling made that sort of... Throwing your body at, at it, no matter what, like take yourself into the back of the net with the ball to make sure you score. There's just a little bit of hesitancy in and around the six-yard box, I felt.
2: Yeah, I think Gundawan could make a difference in that scenario. Um, I don't know <clears throat> who you necessarily would take out of that lineup to, to shoehorn that's him the problem, in. problem, isn't it? Yeah, it right.
0: was just everyone else was so good.
2: Um, but on the on the topic of the... The kind of winger-striker debate at City is, you know, these things can be expected in a team with no striker. I'm not going to go on and on about, like you you said, about why City need a striker, why the false nine is better, whatever. Um, But I do think that there is a huge difference between the way that an ordinary striker... And I'm sorry, I I don't think there is a huge difference between the way that an ordinary striker and an ordinary winger or attacking midfielder strike the ball. The difference between those players, the difference between a Riyad Mahrez and a Sergio Aguero is that Sergio Aguero can see the path of the ball ahead of time and will already be waiting in that vacant space and the ball will fall at his feet. Whereas many of the City goals that are tap-ins at the back post the player is coming on to the ball as they strike it, if that makes sense. Mm, Whereas Aguero yeah. will be sitting there waiting because he knows almost like he can see into the future where the ball is going to come and where he needs to plant himself. And and most strikers are that way as well. Um, like you said, this game is, is one of those where somebody with that kind of that, that ability to sniff out a goal and sniff out the vacant space in the box would have been really necessary in this game. <clears throat> and City probably could have scored four or five if it, if they had had a player like that um but you can't complain too much when you're in an FA Cup semi-final, a Champions League quarter-final and you're seven games away from winning the the Premier League title. So what can you say?
0: Yeah, it does feel like what what can you say but there's, there's almost too much to say about this game and and not enough to say at times as well. Um I mentioned before about the XG then and uh, there was a piece by a lot of name dropping going on today but it just shows the coverage that the, the wider media have shown to this match but um, Jonathan Wilson in the Guardian in his match report he, he, he picked up on the fact that City had outperformed every single opposition team this season on XG and obviously you know there's Occasion, City have dropped points, so it's not always worked, and it, it, it's phenomenal, really, isn't it? Because you you mentioned the chance creation that City have, and how it does feel like at times City do need those five chances to get a goal, whereas the opposition, in this case Liverpool, perhaps their their two, three chances lead to goals, and it, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because the worst spells where Liverpool like they could they could score at any points, but there were spells where a couple of their goals, well, well both of their goals came out of nothing really and um, obviously the, the period of the game just after half time and, and before that in the first half where City had potentially lacked a couple of chances to double their advantage do you think then there's there's regret in the dressing room that this opportunity to take two points further two points off a title rival that has has come and gone or do you think, given the build that we've had, how how both managers were saying this isn't the title de- title decider? We're here now, the day after the game, as it's finished two two, and and literally nothing has changed. Do you think there's perhaps then you know it's it's not as it's not as drastic as some people are making out.
2: If there's regret on the behalf of the players, uh, I think it's brief, and I think it's probably already gone as we're speaking the day after the game. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a number of factors that play into that. One, you don't have the time to dwell on anything right now in the season because you've got this massive game against Liverpool, and three days later you've got to focus on a second leg Champions League quarterfinal uh, in Madrid. But you know, these are players that, especially the players that have been with Pep, Pep Guardiola for a long time, you can you can bet that the message is you played well, and that's the most important part. If you play like that in every game chances are you're going to win most of your games. And that's probably the message coming down from Guardiola to his players is you did everything I asked. Um, You did everything the way that you were told and, and the way that you were supposed to. Unfortunately, the result didn't come, but that's what happens when you play against another great team. So I don't think there's going to be too much regret. There might be one or two players thinking to themselves, oh, I could have taken this chance or taken that chance, or I could have won that ball in midfield before Liverpool score, whatever. But I think they're going to move on from it so quickly and just focus on what's next. And the way that City is going to write, or that these individual players will write their wrongs in their head is is play even better next game out and go on and win the title.
0: One player who cannot have regret, I think it's fair to say, is Kevin De Bruyne, who was it it shows something doesn't it really that the fact that you've got the two best teams in world football in city liverpool two of the the most talented squads ever assembled and the best man on the pitch was was quite clear from from a mile off basically wasn't it it was there was no debate post game about who who the man of the match was in kevin de bruyne or he's... He's really kicked on in 2022, hasn't he? Because I remember chats we've had and and sort of discussions elsewhere about how it didn't feel like the best Kevin De Bruyne season. And obviously you've mentioned a number of times the fact that he had a troublesome pre-season, a really nasty injury in the Champions League final that carried over into his preparations for the Euros. He got injured again, that carried over his preparations for the new season and just never really got clicking in that first part of the campaign. But now... Is the 3P on, do you think, for the PFA Player of the Year? I guess recency bias is the sort of thing that maybe uh, used to used to beat this argument away. And let's not forget how phenomenal Mohamed Salah was in that period where Kevin De Bruyne wasn't so much. But he just absolutely bossed the game. And, and one where I suppose we'll, we'll give our verdicts a little bit later on, but probably one of the best ever Premier League fixtures. And he was head and shoulders above the the net second best player and then head and shoulders above them as well it was it was an astonishing performance wasn't it
2: it was and we're seeing this every week from him now um, and the interesting thing is you know on the on the PFA a, a three peat of the PFA player of the year shout it's interesting because like you said in the beginning of the season in the first 3 or 4 months when when de bruyne wasn't necessarily at the races Mo Salah was was playing out of his skin and scoring two two goals a game almost yeah. Um, whereas now Salah doesn't have a a goal from open play since February and and Kevin De Bruyne has kicked on and is, is kind of stealing the show. So it'll be interesting to see how that race kind of comes down in the last seven, eight games. Um, but he's just, he's just, I've seen so many shouts in the last 24 hours of he's essentially already cemented himself as the best midfielder to ever play for the club, which is incredible when you think Mm. of the midfielders that have played at this club, especially in recent years your David Silva's, Yaya Torres, players like that. And, and to have somebody that's still playing, and I think it's a beautiful thing when people announce somebody almost as a legend or or a best of all time while they're still playing because a lot of times these things don't come until yeah. after their career and when you can look back and the, desk, the dust kind of settles and you can be like, wow, we, we witnessed something mm. special. Um, people are, are realizing that we're witnessing something special right now. But you think about – The games that he does this in, you know, he obviously will do it in the games where um, he's expected to dominate, but games like Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, games like that where he is, like you said, head and shoulders, the best player on the pitch. That is unbelievable, especially from a guy who six or seven months ago, there were shouts of, is he even necessary in our midfield anymore?
0: Yeah. And I think perhaps you can go back and find an episode where I said that De Bruyne probably doesn't go into City's best midfield, but maybe we'll have to wipe that from the face of the earth. And it goes—it goes to show that the sort of the best players have to bounce back from adversity, really, don't they? And, and he definitely had that adversity. And there are, there are—I think perhaps maybe you could label Bruno Fernandes as somebody who <coughs> hasn't. Bounced back from the criticism that he's faced recently, and you see the the team he's in and how it's it's sort of flagging a little bit and how they're struggling um, down the road a little bit. And there's a there, there's a difference between a world class player and, a, and, a, and an all timer, um, which is the tag that that De Bruyne has been labelled with. And yeah, you, you spot on. He is he's a living legend, and and the the, the best thing about it is that he continues to improve like you say and and when it matters he continues to improve that's that was two goals against United in the derby at home he's now scored two against Liverpool he's scored against Chelsea he obviously scored against Atletico Madrid in the in the week as well and in in the era I think of where you've got great players who are the, the term that are sort of wouldn't want to use but maybe sometimes fits best is the stat padding and you get you know a a lot of the focus is on goals and assist numbers and, and it can be inflated at times or it can sort of not necessarily show the true picture De Bruyne really is a player who is who's mattering when it when it needs to matter most and you know you think about the games that City have coming up and and they're never ending at the moment and hopefully they continue until May he's a he's a extremely important asset and and he really did show his class yet again. Um, A bit more on individuals then and one person who just, I I, I don't really have any words um, and that's Edison because I think we've become accustomed to his antics a little bit over the last few years since he arrived in Manchester but that Incident. I don't even know what you call it. The the misplaced touch. The the sort of drag back. It was it was all bizarre. It's just an absolute blur for me now. But he really is a borderline psychopath, isn't he? And obviously, um, post game when the dust had settled, there was that photo that that was being shared on social media from behind the goal, where you can see part of the ball crossing the line and edison just as calm as you like trying to kick it away and i guess this is a long-winded analogy so stick with me but um it was my dad's birthday this weekend and and, you know shout out to my dad happy happy 51st birthday um 51 years young but on on saturday evening we went to watch the new batman film and really good film really really enjoyed it quite long quite dark but there was a there's a great villain in there the, the riddler and and you, you, for those who may have seen it may, may understand this sort of analogy, but there was sort of, with Batman villains and, and sort of superhero villains in general, there's this calculated madness, isn't there? And I was thinking after I saw that photo, you could definitely see Edison as a superhero villain post-football career, couldn't you? That sort of... Because he's teetering on the brink of insanity constantly and the weird thing is, you just know because he posted the photo on Instagram with his usual thumbs up caption, which was brilliant we just know in his head he is loving that isn't he? he's absolutely loving that and he's getting off on that and he's thinking you know what I love this 54,000 people with their hearts in their mouths and however many more around the world injects it into me
2: yeah and the best thing is he did the same thing at Anfield as well yeah, he yeah let he let a ball he let a ball run through his legs and across the the goal line in front of the cop and just played it out when the ball was like halfway over the line so this is this is nothing new with Ederson. I, honestly, in that moment, I felt no fear. I felt yeah, no that, fear. That's
0: a weird thing, isn't it? That's a strange thing that you just think uh, he's under control.
2: I I was in, like I said, I was on a family vacation, and I actually had the misfortune of having to watch this game with my brother in law, who's a lifelong Liverpool fan, <laughs> um, and typically. I, we will not watch this game together. And that's, that's my choosing. He doesn't necessarily have the same emotional input as I do, but I cannot, I cannot watch this game with him. But we just happened to have this trip planned for a long time. Um, and everybody in the house made some sort of yelping (laughs) noise when that, that happened. And I just sat there with my Guinness in hand and just let it play out. I I knew that, I knew nothing was going to come of it. I'm just, we're just used to it at this point.
0: Yeah. I think that was, though, that was, possibly the closest it's ever been. That was... Because I didn't realise, my seat is in the um, it's in the sort of on the corner of the south stand at the next to the away end, so it was completely the opposite end of the stadium to me. And you could sort of tell that he was scrambling a little bit. And my dad turned around to me and said, "I've I don't think I've ever seen him that panicked." But then when you see the photograph and his his face is just stone cold. There's absolutely no emotion in it. And, and someone replied to me actually saying, um, "Goalkeepers have to be cold blooded," but Edison was in that situation no blooded and that's what it feels like doesn't it it just feels like he's this this sort of computer program that never really malfunctions and is almost robotic and and an absolute psychopath and you have to be that to be a goalkeeper but he takes it to the next level and that was that was perhaps the, the the sort of the epitome of Edison, and and I think the the telling part was a lot of Benfica fans were jumping on that photo um, late last night, and they were going like, "It's good to see he's never changed." So this isn't <laughs> something that that's new for Edison. It's, it isn't something that's new uh, for those who've watched him for a while. Just just on that, do you think there was perhaps maybe a little bit of criticism to throw at him for the Diogo Jota goal? Um, obviously, it was a it was a nice move from Liverpool, sweeping move. They switched to the play well, but sort of squirmed un, under him a little bit and i, I suppose that there's a one or two occasions this year where you think you, you could perhaps have, have seen a little bit more from him or am i just being a little bit hypercritical
2: i'm gonna be totally honest uh in games like this i absolutely black out from a mixture of anxiety <laughs> and guinness and i have no recollection of individual moments i couldn't tell you what any of the goals looked like genuinely i can't i was i it's funny I was we were watching some kind of like uh, replays of some of the bigger games between these teams in the past uh, in the build up to yeah. to Sunday's game and um I I turned on the game from 2018-19 of course when City turned the tide in the in the title race and my girlfriend and I were sat in the south stand that game mm. and we were rewatching the game and at some point in in the the highlight package she looked at me and she's like I have no memory of any of this happening, like none. This is a completely new experience to me watching this game because she was such a ball of anxiety at the game. Um, and that's kind of the way I feel, so I'll be totally honest with you, I have no idea what Liverpool's goals look like, especially because I normally leave the room when they score.
0: <laughs> and on that note, subscribe and follow for more <laughs> expert analysis and insight, but I know not you mean, it goes back to what you were saying at the start, where this game, it just feels like a fever dream, doesn't it? These, these moments, these occasions, and I was speaking to a, a Liverpool friend slash journalist after the game, and he was in the away end, and we were sort of Given our two pences and and our sort of thoughts on the fixture, and he was like, "I don't, I couldn't do that if there was a European Cup at stake." And I was like, "I, I don't want to play Liverpool again." And it may mean that City get knocked out of the Champions League. I, I don't know, but the thought of a date in Paris with those two teams playing that sort of game, and granted, it probably would be a little bit more touchy. It wouldn't be as open. It would be a little more cagey and whatnot because that's what big finals are like. But the thought of having to go through that. With a European Cup at stake, I've got a, I've got a rumble in my stomach thinking about it now, and and that's what that that sort of fixture felt like. Um, I guess we'll do this now. Then we're going to save it to a little bit later on, but we'll talk about the. The, the rivalry itself, or if we are allowed to call it a rivalry, because I found it fantastically hilarious that United and Arsenal fans, whose teams were both involved in pretty humiliating defeats over the weekend, spent a, a good 72 hours in the build-up to this game on the front line, trying to defend their 20-year-old rivalry between, um, between Arsenal and, and United, of course, only for City and Liverpool to play out the best game of the season for probably the second time this year. Um, a, lot, a lot's been said about this, hasn't it, really? But just a simple question, and to start off with yes or no answer, Adam. Is this the best Premier League rivalry the the league has ever seen? I'm going to give a really murky no. A really murky no. Okay, then, let's get into it. Why not?
2: Partly because I find this question really hard to answer because, like you said, the, the sentiment this week in the build-up to the game was... Um, I think it kind of all was kicked off with with Jamie Carragher's article, yeah, where he called it the biggest rivalry in the Premier League era, um, and I know that that rubbed a lot of a lot of United and Arsenal fans and anybody who looked looked back on that era fondly um, wrong. I was not even ten years old when that rivalry was taking place. Mm-hmm. You know, in the late nineties and two thousands, I was born in nineteen ninety six. I have no memory of that of that rivalry. I have read about it. I've seen some of the matches. Um, but I can't really touch on what the overall feeling was in the build-up to the games that they played against yeah. each other and, and things like that. Um, also, I've been pretty adamant on this podcast that in my opinion, up until this season, there hasn't been some sort of Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp era. Just to run through some of the numbers here, which mostly everybody knows city have three Premier League titles in this era. Liverpool have one city have Five domestic cups, Liverpool have won, and they won it less than two months ago. Liverpool have won Champions League, City have none. They didn't play each other on the way to get there. Um, now look, if City win this title, this Premier League title by one point, Liverpool go on to win the FA Cup or, or the Champions League, and or if they beat City in a Champions League final, then we can have some sort of discussion. But the feeling of the entire footballing world coming down to what, liverpool versus manchester city provides that only existed in the last six months or so really only in the last few months um you know but let's say city do a a league and cup double this season the trophy count of this era would be 10 to city and three possibly four to liverpool Mm -hmm. the only rivalry there is pep guardiola's rivalry with sir alex's records that he's going to be chasing down in the the next few years to be honest like it's Yeah, it's just it's just not some era where it's like these two great clubs battled it out for all of all of England and Europe's biggest prizes because one club won a lot more and they didn't really play each other on the way to winning those things. You know, Liverpool came in second in one of only in only one of three, the the three city Premier League titles in this era. It's not like they finished one point adrift of city three years in a row. It's. We're getting there. We're getting there. If if a season like this plays out again and again, then then we can have the discussion. But we just aren't there yet, in my opinion.
0: I think it's important to probably distinguish the differences between a rivalry and a derby because in, in a lot of the, the hashtag discourse, I think this is going to miss a little bit. And, and I don't think anybody is trying to claim that City versus Liverpool is the most hated, the most fixture full of angst or the game with the most sort of passion or, uh, you know, sort of full-bloody tackles and whatnot. Because that, that's not true, is it? That's simply not true. If you need that, go and watch the the Celtic Rangers' old firm games because not only do they happen about 96 times a season, there is enough angst in those games to sort of last a lifetime. I'd probably go down a different route and, and say it's it, it maybe isn't there yet, um, partly because of the stuff you mentioned about the fact that this game was so, uh, sorry, the Arsenal United game was so long ago and and that sort of, it's hard to judge them side by side because a lot has happened in between and, and teams have come and gone since. I, I, I sort of have a, a small recollection of those games um, and they, they always felt like, it almost felt like, a, again to go back to it, it almost felt like a big boxing match and you, you knew somebody was going to get hurt. But I think that's probably more down to the fact the era of football that that was being played mm-hmm. at that time, and the fact that now we 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 don't have to have that sort of testosterone fueled sort of older men shouting in each other's faces on the football pitch, or managers who are approaching the sixties or seventies having fisticuffs on the sideline like it's not what football is anymore and for better or worse i was in a after the after the game on sunday the liverpool game i was in a pub in manchester i forget the name of it but there were two two lads from ireland a, a dad and a son who had come over to watch the uh, united everton game they, they were they were uh, Ever, uh, sorry united fans and they were saying after it like they couldn't believe how the players were hugging after the game, and this is a City Liverpool. They couldn't believe how the the players were hugging after the game, and you know Guardiola was laughing and joking with Klopp, and he was hugging Liverpool players, and you know they were they were sharing embraces and warm stuff, and saying like we'd have never had that with the Arsenal game. And, and part of me was thinking like, okay, like does that make a difference? Does it, does do you have to have this sort of fragile masculinity in football for it to be considered a good rivalry? I don't know. For me personally, I would prefer to see two teams who. Sort of their 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 passion is played out on the pitch, and you, you mentioned there the sort of the, the differences in in trophies. For me, I'd look at the points tally and the fact that four out of five of the all-time Premier League uh, most points in a season are held by both City and Liverpool. Now, if City go on and, and win the remaining seven games, they'd actually make it five out of five. Albeit Chelsea have the, um, I think that's, I think that's right. Or, or, or they finish on ninety-five points, which is. I think United, uh, free, clear, free clear of United's most all-time record itself. So there's definitely levels being set by these two teams and, and for it to get there, like I said, I think it's if it's not there already, it's definitely on the way. There does have to be one or two more seasons like this where the intensity stays the same. And the most important thing for me here is a cup final between the two. And if we do get that in the summer with the, with the Champions League final, and it is a case of City or Liverpool winning the Champions League final by beating the other team, then I think that probably cements it. I think we could have probably had that if it was the FA Cup final, but obviously um, the semi-final got in the way. I don't know if there's any sort of takeaways from that, from that you want to jump on, but it, it, does feel like it's getting there there are still sort of little bits of elements that that need to be sorted out and and I think you mentioned before if if Liverpool do end up winning the the league this season then there's real conversations to be had about that Klopp versus Pep era but if City do go on to get a couple of trophies then maybe the trophy numbers sort of uh make that that disparity a little bit hard to catch
2: yeah I think the one final thing I want to say on, on the whole rivalry thing is you know for me especially as an american with our rivalries being so different here um you know a lot of times your local rival could be three hours away from you um there is also the idea which i subscribe to that rivalries are for the fans in my opinion i don't think players care they may have back in the day um but you've got guys on, on either side of, of Liverpool and City that play on the same national teams. They've played on, on other club teams together before. Um, if you go and look at the the rivalries that you feel like really, really spill over from the stands onto the pitch, you're looking at El Clasico, where you do have kid, local kids that come up play through for the the Barcelona Academy or the Real Madrid Academy and come through and then they're playing each other in cup finals and and battling out for, for La Liga titles and, and these are guys that are playing for their cities. If if Liverpool had, you know, uh eleven players like Trent Alexander Arnold and City had eleven players like Phil Foden, then the rivalry would be ferocious on the field. Mm. It just would. The level of respect would still be there, but there is animosity between the cities of Liverpool and Manchester, and that's why you have animosity between the fan bases, but it doesn't really spill over onto the yeah. pitch or or with the managers because as much as you want to believe Jurgen Klopp is an honorary Scouser and, and Pep Guardiola is an honorary Mank, they're they're not from there. Yeah. They don't they won't they won't ever get it the way that locals do. And I know that I'm banging on about this not as a local, but it's the same case in, in sports everywhere. These are these are celebrities that play for your club. They are multimillionaire employees. Sorry. Oh, yeah. That just that's just yeah. the way that sports is. Um so I think rivalries. For me, start in the in the stadium, in the stands, and then if they if it does bleed over into the pitch, you've got yourself a great, great, great rivalry. But to me, I don't really care if the players like each other or dislike each other because my animosity is not necessarily aimed at them.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think we need to sort of protect derbies in the sense, and not just in England, but you know across Europe as well. Like I think, for example, the Belgrade Derby, which is. Is a derby and it's a rivalry all in one because they're probably the two best teams in Serbia. Whereas here we're we talking about a situation where City and Liverpool happen to be the best two teams at this period of time. And it's only a matter of coincidence that Guardiola chose City because that's what the best project was. And like you say, it's, it's not Guardiola didn't choose, choose City because he grew up listening to the Smiths or Oasis. You know, it, it, City were the best club that, that suited him at the same time. Suddenly for Klopp and Liverpool, there's There's an argument to say that had Steven Gerrard not slipped in that uh, that 2013-14 campaign, Liverpool win the league, Brendan Rodgers keeps his job, Jurgen Klopp is at Arsenal. And we could have been saying that City-Arsenal is the best rivalry of all time. Similarly, like 20 years ago, United and Arsenal were the best two teams at that moment. United had plenty of that, by the way. The, the, whichever team was fighting at the top, United had an intense, ferocious rivalry with at the time. You know, just ask Villa fans, just ask all sorts of teams who were challenging. So it's it is sort of just the, the complexities and the matter matters of coincidence, really, isn't it? Right then, um, let's go on to a little bit more of a a sad topic, a, a, a disappointing, an angry topic because. I don't know how much this was covered on the sort of international coverage, but inside the stadium, it was pretty clear. One moment during the first half, which will not be remembered fondly about this game, was a plane flying over with a banner that read an extremely offensive and provocative message. It was... I don't get these banners anyway. Sometimes they they say funny things. Sometimes they say sort of pretty horrible things. In this case, it was, but they they seem to be a little bit stupid. But this one read, um, Brits will be the minority by 2066. Since the full-time whistling, since we've we've come to record, a far-right group have taken responsibility for this stunt. Uh, We won't name them because we... Not in the sort of wanting to give them any publicity more than they've got, but it's actually the second game in a row at the Etihad Stadium where the, there has been messaging from far right groups or supporters, and that comes after the Atletico match. Now, Adam, you looked into this a little bit, didn't you, for uh, for an outlet elsewhere about the the Atletico game in particular and the sort of the the iconography <clears> and the 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 sort of the flags and the banners and the chants and stuff like that. If you want to sort of run through what you found there and and what sort of came. As as a, as a consequence,
2: yeah, I mean, from the Atletico game, there were some pretty disturbing images and videos that came out of um, <clears throat> them. Some of the Atletico supporters, and of course, this does this isn't um, generalizing on all Atletico Madrid supporters. Hopefully, it's just a very small, um, ignorant minority. Um, but they were doing, you know, Nazi salutes, flying flags that had far right symbols, Nazi symbols, things like that. Um, you also saw some flags hung up around, uh, Manchester city center where some of the Atletico fans were with, with the same kind of messages. And, and look, you know, this, we say this all the time, whether it's in a private conversation between you and I, or on this podcast, that, that things that happen in football, whether it be homophobia, transphobia, racism, any form of bigotry is, is typically just football playing its role as a microcosm of society. you know, far-right groups, far-right thinking, that's all becoming more and more mainstream in everyday life in our society. You can credit right-wing propaganda for that. Um, you know, here in the U.S., there are states making it illegal for teachers to even acknowledge the fact that gay people exist in schools um, because propaganda machines are, are telling these, these kids' parents that their kids are being taught how to be gay, um, things like that. Whereas in reality, it's acknowledging that gay people exist, bisexual people exist, uh, transgender people exist. And how do we make them a, a, a more normal part of society? Because they are normal people who just want to be a part of society like your average white straight male. Um, so look, it, like I said, this these things are very unfortunate, but them happening in football is just the fact that society bleeds into football every single day.
0: This is, um, and I use this, this phrase lightly, but it's a topic close to my heart. And, and I mean that for the reason, because actually this time last year, I was getting around to submitting my final year dissertation on fascism and, and, and the far right in football for university. And part of that involves speaking to some unsavoury people about the topic who had had sort of first-hand experiences I spoke to some fantastic people who had who had been doing work around it and, and, and some people who had sort of seen it first-hand in the terraces and whatnot this is going back to the 1980s the 1990s and then the sort of the, the move into commercialisation of football and how that seemingly disappeared on the surface but was still an underground movement And to be honest, football and and fascism and far-right ideologies have been intrinsically linked for, for the best part of a century. And incidents like these aren't... Really, anything new in british or european football um you, you know it's it's a completely different story on the continent where you've got ultra groups who are directly linked to political affiliations, be that those who hold power in government or or those who lobby or you know perhaps are activists or anything like that and that stretches across the political spectrum. This is not just a far right issue, however. In this country, uh, and I know that sort of contrasts with the Atletico one because that was uh, a Spanish um, supporting group. But but in terms of the banner, which was across the Etihad on on Sunday, far right groups know that football is the breeding ground for new new recruits in inverted commas, and this has been happening, like I said, since the early nineteen hundreds. There's evidence of um, Oswald Mosley, who was the sort of the, the figurehead of the far right movement in England. Going to football stadiums in the early 1920s and targeting young men because that's not faith, that, that that's primarily and still is the um, the primary group of football supporters and and getting them to sign up for 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 his organisation and as abhorrent as the banner was and and the Atletico stuff too what made this even more disappointing for me I suppose was that the facts were in the month of Ramadan and some of the best players on the pitch in both the Atletico game and the Liverpool game were practising Muslims or are practising Muslims. And to sort of see that in in, when the eyes of the world are on this fixture, and and like I say, I don't know how much um, coverage it got on the international broadcast, if at all, or or if it was something that came across on social media, but to see that happen and you just think of... All the all the, the the fantastic joy, the fantastic brilliance that that some of these players bring, and it doesn't make a difference what what faith they are at all. But you know, we, we have to recognise that some players are, are currently fasting and still playing at the, the top European game, um, and sort of the difficulties that must must sort of bring about. But. It just, it's a bitterly disappointing. And as you say, it is, it is a reflection of society and it is the sort of state we are in, not just in football, in sport in general, but in terms of a general sport, uh, a general life uh, uh, away from the stadium as well.
2: Yeah. And as far as the coverage that, that we, at least on our, the, the U S broadcast, uh, there was no mention of it. It <clears throat> wasn't acknowledged at all. I'm not saying that the, um, the NBC sports broadcast team was, uh, aware of it and decided to ignore it. They may not have been aware of it at the time. Um, but I remember, you know, watching the game and hearing the plane fly over, um, which automatically I thought that it was going to be something bad because my only ever experience with this is when um you know, I won't say Burnley fans. Somebody from Burnley flew the yeah. White Lives Matter flag over the Etihad yeah. in the in, during Project Restart, when of course there was worldwide protests um, going yeah. on after uh, George Floyd's murder here in the U.S. Um, so I didn't actually see anything until this morning. I woke up and was just scrolling Twitter and and saw finally saw what the banner was. Um, I saw. Yesterday, that Stephen Tudor, who's the host of 9320 podcast, had um, mentioned something about the banner, and I think he also said that he had gotten a leaflet yeah, from yeah. the same the same group that in his mailbox, and I'm sure plenty of other people in in the UK uh, did as well. So, look, it's what more can you say? than it's it's disgusting. It's mm. you know it's it's almost not worth mentioning. We need to kick this kind of stuff out of our society because we've said it so many times, so many times. Um, But it's a shame that what should have been a really incredible day of football that for many people in that stadium, especially minorities that it could have walked away from that game, you know, uh, offended, upset, Mm. distressed, whatever, because of that message.
0: Definitely. And I think you make a great point there. It's almost not worth mentioning, but at the same time, it's it's definitely worth mentioning because it needs to be challenged and it's finding that balance, isn't it? And that's why I didn't want to sort of give the group, um, you, you know, the name of them and, and give the publicity in that sense. But but let's hope we're, we're leaving that behind for good because no place in the game. I think that goes without saying. Yeah. Um, Final topic for today before we bounce, then, because a uh, bit of breaking news. We're, we're coming at you with a double episode this week. We're going to be back on Thursday after the Atletico second leg. Obviously, City boast a 1-0 lead heading into that game after Kevin De Bruyne's goal at the Etihad Stadium on Tuesday night. Yeah, Tuesday night. God, it's, it's, It feels like a long time ago that <laughs> um, gave City a 1-0 win. But it by no means rules Atletico out. We'll keep it short and sweet then, but how do you see this game panning out from a City point of view?
2: Uh, I see this game playing out in... An identical manner to the first leg. I think there are some shouts from some City fans mm-hmm. saying, right, we've got the goal. Now they have to come out a bit more and attack us, and, and you know, we can expose that. I don't see that happening at all. I think they will do the exact same thing Atletico did in the first leg, play a 5-5. And I think if you're Diego Simeone, and you, you go back and you watch that first leg, Atletico had moments. Mm. You know, I think That's they nice. finished... They finished the game with zero shots on target, and I think a, an XG of 0.0. But that was because of um, a lack of composure in the final third when they when they broke. But they had the opportunity to break, especially when City's center backs are camped on the edge of their box. One good outlet ball to draw Felix, Antoine Griezmann, or you know some of the speedier guys like Renan Lodi and Marcus Lorente. And city will be wide open, so I don't think anything changes. I think we will see a mirror image of the first leg, and if you know seventy minutes on or seventy five minutes on, the the score is the same the same way. Then Atleti will have to come out and attack a bit more. But I don't think that one Kevin De Bruyne goal changes the entire tactical complexion of the tie.
0: Yeah, I agree. There, I definitely agree. And and this, uh, it's going to be weird, isn't it? Going from that breathless affair with Liverpool, where y- your dad's on Twitter saying football's the winner, and you know everyone's <laughs> everyone leaves it feeling happy. Going back to that sort of, you say five five, I'm going six four zero settled for Atletico <laughs> on Wednesday night because it it was. It was a struggle at times in the first leg. And um, I know this is going to sound like a, a, an extremely obvious point, but sometimes we, we just have to make them because the, the, it is what it is. But I think more so than ever, the first goal in this game is going to matter so much because if, it, if Atletico score within the first 15 minutes or so, for me, I think that probably makes them favourites for the tie, especially given the lack of away goals. And um, I actually think this is probably one of the only teams in Europe where, the, the configuration of the the sort of the home leg being first and the away leg being second could possibly help City in the sense that we City can afford to be a little bit more conservative. I, I, I Do I think it will happen? Absolutely not. But if it gets to the point where City have to sort of see out a period in the game, they can afford to be a little bit more conservative, whereas at home you'd have the situation where the crowd, like it was on, on Tuesday night, where the crowd is getting on the backs, the, the sort of... Asking for more from the players and the sort of trying to push them forward a little bit more, and I think actually the the fact that if City can stay in the game, in the sense, and I think that's probably what's more important than getting into into the the half of it with say another goal or whatnot. If City come out of that game, it's come out of that half, sorry, still within that tie and still with that advantage, then I think we'll see an open affair because. Put it this way: Atletico have to score, don't they, Um, if they want to stay if they want to stay in the competition. So it it will be an intriguing affair for the sort of the football sadists who who like to watch one team in in their own half and the other team in that same half. But in terms of the setup, then, because it's interesting, is it? Because this game looks massive, and you know you would automatically say strongest team possible. But you look beyond that: FA Cup semi final on on the Saturday, midweek game against Brighton weekend game against uh, Watford. So there's there's all sorts of little um, little things that could come into play in terms of who's selected and given the effort that they put in on, on Sunday against Liverpool, do you expect to see some sort of rotation within the squad?
2: I do and I'm actually feeling pretty positive about the rotation. I think if you had asked me or if you had told me two months ago that there would be this two-week period in which you play the four biggest games of your season in, in 11, 12, 13 days, whatever it is, I would have been a bit worried because I think at that time, um, Gabriel Jesus wasn't in his best form. Raheem Sterling wasn't in his best form. Um, we hadn't seen this side of Nathan Ake that we've seen in recent hmm. games. Whereas, um, you look at Gabriel Jesus's performance against Liverpool, I think he was the best player on the pitch other than Kevin De Bruyne, in the, especially in that first half. um, I think that was a fantastic selection by pep nathan ake was was great in that first leg against atletico madrid uh he was great against burnley so i actually do think that there's a bit more room for rotation now and if you go and look at you know the the, the, the lineup against liverpool there were some players that were were not on the pitch ruben diaz hopefully will be coming back from injury ryan mares didn't start jack grealish didn't start um kyle walker will be coming back from suspension for this atletico game that will shake things up as well but i do think that there are two or three players in the city squad that maybe were on the outside looking in that have really stepped up in recent weeks and now that makes pep's job as far as rotating a little bit easier and it makes me and i hopefully the general city fan base um feel a little bit better about going into this game with with a Gabriel Jesus or a Raheem Sterling instead of a Jack Grealish or, or a Riyad Mahrez because I think they've proved that they can step up in these games and I'm actually, I'm not too worried about how the teams get rotated. I think all these mm. players are good enough to perform in these games.
0: Yeah, if you can't, if, if you're sort of a fringe player and you can't get yourself up for a... Champions League quarterfinal or a, or a title decider. Obviously, it wasn't, but a, a big game against Liverpool at home or an FA Cup semi-final, then you're probably in the wrong business, aren't you? Um, and, and yeah, I think from from the halfway point in this mammoth four-game spell, the way the, the the teams have been used, I think has been as good as we could have hoped for, basically. Given and, and perhaps maybe Guardiola's hand was forced a little bit with the hazy selection, given the fact that he's you know he's suspended against Atletico and. He wouldn't be able to play in that game, so do you use him in this game and and save Jack Grealish's legs, for example? I don't know, but but it it works well, and he got a goal, and you know he he, he performed excellently, and and now obviously we'll sit this one out. The other side of that is, of course, Kyle Walker's back in contention, and he's had a, a relatively calm few weeks. Obviously, no international break for him. Didn't play in the first leg, came back in for the the Burnley game, and then the and then the Liverpool game in the league. So he's had a couple of weeks rest and. You should expect that he should start. But then, of course, what do you, what do, you do on the opposite side? Because Nathan Ake was incredible. So it will be a, an interesting couple of weeks for Pep Guardiola. Uh, sorry, an interesting couple of days. We will be an interesting couple of uh, weeks, as it always is. But an interesting couple of days for him to sort of find the balance once again. But I think we will wrap it up there because we have, as always, covered an incredible amount of stuff from the Liverpool game through to sort of Giving our thoughts on the on the societal makeup of, of football and, and politics within football and then obviously bringing it back to the game itself. So, like I said, we'll be back in your ears on Thursday for a review of the Atletico game. Let's hope we've still got these big smiles on our faces. And then a preview for the Liverpool FA Cup semi-final. The football doesn't stop, does it, Adam? It's it's just constantly, constantly coming at us. But I think in the summer when when we're sort of in june and july lulling in pre-season will be we'll be longing for these days
2: yeah it's the unfortunate conundrum of of being football fans with a lot of emotional skin in the game is is it's really really stressful to be in it and really really boring to not be in it so uh yeah you're you're spot on we will be hating living through these games at the moment because mm-hmm. it's just too stressful and then we will like you said we'll be longing for them in, in june and
0: july I'll we'll put it this way: Wednesday night is the last time we have to play a Diego Simeone team this season. Whether that ends up in a in a in a positive result or a negative one, who knows? But we won't have to sort of experience that again, which is is only a benefit um, that I can see. But yeah. If you can, leave a rating and a review on this podcast. It really helps us out. I really appreciate it. Also, follow if you haven't already. We'll we'll be coming with you in plenty of new episodes across the coming weeks. Hopefully the games keep on coming and then obviously into preseason, and then ahead of the new campaign next year. Thank you very much for listening. I have been Amos Murphy. You can check us out on Twitter if you want to contact us or send us any questions.
2: I've been Adam Booker.
0: Until next time, see you later. See ya. Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end of season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply, see mcdonalds.com. Hold
1: up.